If you can't stand up for a principle that you believe in, if you can't stand up when somebody's doing something that isn't right, if you can't stand up for a human being that you respect and love and appreciate, who are you? Catherine Brodsky was at the peak of her journalistic career, writing about tech, film, and culture for publications such as Variety and The Washington Post when she fell victim to the cancel culture mob. People were sending me threats. They were trying to reach out to my employers or past employers to make sure I was unhirable. People were attempting to dox me. So it just really spiraled beyond anything I've ever experienced. In this episode, we dive into her new book, No Apologies, How to Find and Free Your Voice in the Age of Outrage. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Catherine Brodsky, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me. Does it mean that I'm a thought leader now, now that I'm on the show? <laughs> I, I think so. And, uh, you know, in your book, it's actually very interesting because I think of your book a bit like a kind of written version of American Thought Leaders. And some of them indeed actually have been on the show. A number of them have been on the show but but it's it's a it, it, the the format even is a, is is a little bit similar so so I feel a kinship there. Oh, excellent! I'm glad I could inspire you. Just just kidding. <laughs> I think you've done it well, earlier than I have. So well, you predate me. You know, absolutely. And the central theme of your book, okay, and you know, there, there's multiple incredibly important themes. But one of the things that really jumped out to me, right, is how central, the concept of bullying, you know, this thing from childhood, right? This thing, we, we, we don't really think about it. We think we've gotten over it. I've, I experienced it myself and responded to it in different ways. It's kind of, in, you've made me actually reflect on this a bit from the book, but how central this is to the whole societal dynamic today. So why don't we just start there? That's a great place to start. It's interesting because I too have been quite massively bullied throughout high school. And it's interesting because the experiences that I've noticed in, in society as of late and things that I tackle in my book, as well as my own experience, has very, very strong similarities to bullying. In fact, I don't know that you would distinguish it from bullying. The only difference might be is that there is some sort of a puritanical motivation, the self-righteousness that maybe bullies in high school didn't necessarily have uh, to the same, same extent. They they bullied you because, you know, you talked a little funny or, or you looked a little funny or you just didn't quite fit in. But the tactics are very similar and, and it's never done. You know, it's not one individual doing the bullying. It's a number of individuals doing the bullying. So I think there's huge similarities. And, you know, I, I think none of us really fully recover from it. But, you know, sometimes the bullied become the bullies, which I always found really strange because I think for me, if anything, when I've sort of recovered from the bullying, um, it made me more empathetic towards other people who might experience the same. And, you know, I kind of think about how I might have felt and, and what I can do about that. But some people actually become the bullies. And, and you know, once somebody's a victim, Sometimes they can't wait to become the victimizer. And my dad, I remember, told me the story. That's the story that stuck with me. It was in the military. You know, uh, it's kind of tradition to to basically haze, bully. Haze, yeah, right? haze, yeah. exactly. The hazing mm -hmm. ritual. You know, that's that is something that's very common in, in many environments, but in particular in the military. And it's quite. It can be quite terrible 
But the, what he had noted was that the same people who were hazed quite terribly couldn't wait for that new fresh crop of people to come in so that they could haze them. And in some ways, I think it's very relevant to what we're seeing in our culture. I think a lot of times it's people who've seen themselves as victims in the past. Now they have a bit of power and they can't wait to haze other people. So, you know, this phenomenon of cancellation, you know, as we're discussing this, uh, it's, it's actually a kind of a actual, it's a mass bullying, isn't it? I would say so. I would definitely say so. I mean, again, same tactics. It's about a group of people coming at you. I think, and you see a pattern in my book, not all the people who've had this experience were, were uh, uh, women necessarily, but a lot of times they were. I think it does happen a little bit more frequently uh, with women. And I think primarily because that's one of the powers of mechanism is words and attacking people and canceling people and sort of ostracizing them. Those are very powerful weapons that people use to sort of um, take out their targets. But you're saying that the women do the bullying or the women are the bullied or both? Uh, well, it can be both because women like to bully other women quite, quite a bit. But I noticed that women do bully more frequently than men do. That said, it's not exclusive to women. Certainly you see men bullying men, men bullying women as well. It's just that I think in, in society in general, um, men can be a little bit more, you know, likely to take up their fists um, and, and settle it in a, a more aggressive way. And women tend to use, you know, their tongues a little bit more, not, not to fight, but to, <laughs> with their words. Right. Well, no, and that's that's a trend, I think, that I, I've seen a number of people describe, even in, in the scientific literature, so to speak. You know, the effect of all this um, is uh, something that you mention, uh, and it's actually, I guess, another central theme in your book, which is that there is this silenced majority that, that and so, so I want to, before we dive into your whole story here, right, because you were kind of part of that silenced majority yeah. initially, just tell me a little bit about that. My hope is, and from what I've observed in society and having many, many conversations with people, is that a lot of the issues that they're seeing in society, including this trend towards, you know, intolerance towards different ideas, the canceling of, of individuals, these bullying mob attacks, those are not things that I believe that most people are actually approval, approving of. In fact, um, a lot of them will voice that privately, but the problem is that they are afraid of becoming victims themselves or targets themselves, and therefore they don't speak up about it. So that's what I really wanted to change. But you know, part of my own story is that I wouldn't say that I hadn't spoken out at all, but I certainly, my, my voice, I would describe it was much more of a whimper as I was starting to see things <laughs> in society that were just not, um, not, not something that sort of adhered to my moral philosophy, my principles. And so I started having conversations with people, I would say a number of years ago, I think I've, I've always sort of expressed dissent when I didn't agree, but it was very private. And there were definitely many, many topics that I was certainly afraid to, to broach, or I'd be much more cautious as to who I talked to about what. So I was definitely, I would consider myself one of the silenced. Catherine, if I 
if you don't mind, um, it would be great to just uh, get our viewers to become familiar with, you know, uh, who you were, you know, prior to starting to, as you said, you know, raise your voice, maybe initially as a, with a whimper, but then uh, 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 more and more. Ironically enough, I was one of the people who was meant to be using their voice. So my most of my career has been as a writer and in different forms. I, uh, I usually describe myself as a storyteller, but I was a journalist. I wrote for Variety. I wrote for The Washington Post, Guardian, Newsweek, Wired, all sorts of publications. And I wrote mostly on culture. I did a lot of interviewing. I did a lot of uh, stories about tech and film and culture. But I wasn't, you know, an opinion writer. I wasn't somebody who was necessarily adding my own context into the stories I was writing. And I also worked quite a bit in, in, in the film industry as well, sort of producing some of the behind the scenes content. So things like that. And so it was interesting because to me, I was I was sort of an objective observer of the world and not politically involved at all. One of the things that I've noticed about you as we've gotten to know each other over the past few years is that, you know, and sometimes it takes a little while, I just want to mention, for people to come out and have a voice, not because they're necessarily afraid, but just because they want to be sure they got it right. But but you observed something happening. Yeah, I, I absolutely was observing. And you're spot on, actually, with your assessment, because... Um, I think sometimes people perceive me as being a bit uh, wobbly or not, you know, I don't speak always with such certainty because I'm often undecided about certain questions and I'm going back and forth and back and forth. And if I'm going to come out and say something that I really believe in, I have to actually really believe in it and be pretty convinced that I've got it right. Um, and still willing, I'm always willing to change my mind. So it makes, you know, I think it's much more impactful sometimes when people speak with absolute certainty. Um, it can be more charismatic, more persuasive. But for me, what I was quite certain that I was seeing in the world, especially in journalism, I was very much seeing how things were shifting from, you know, an objective reporting with very, you know, I, I, I was fortunate enough to work with editors who, really honed in on some of my stories with really good questions to help me push my stories further to be more accurate to not be putting any kinds of opinions in them and have that level of objectivity instead of this sort of objectivity i was seeing you know pretty much activist journalism happening and the other thing that i was seeing is that certain stories just weren't um weren't allowed to be told. And you had this sort of chilling effect. It wasn't like somebody was saying to you, you can't tell the story, you just kind of know. And I've, I've noticed this, I remember pitching, I had an editor who was very, very enthusiastic about me writing actually an op-ed at the time, it would have been my first op-ed. And I had this really kind of different take on, a, on a, something that was happening uh, with a current news story and it didn't quite conform to the societal norms, I suppose, at the time, even though in my mind, I was just investigating something that was quite obvious. I found additional facts about the story and I thought it was worth telling, you know, tackling that. And I've had another experience with a very large publication that killed a story because it very much went against a particular narrative as well. And that was something that really stuck with me and really struck me. And it does have that chilling effect because, you know, next time I'm not going to, I never even pitched to any of these editors again, but that is a real problem. And I was very, very critical of journalism 
at the time, I started really speaking out about what was going on. It wasn't about an ideology. It was really very much just about the principles. As somebody who grew up in very liberal environments, you know, freedom of speech, being able to challenge ideas, having the opportunity to discuss them was so fundamental and was actually very much embedded in these, you know, very left left leaning institutions. And suddenly it was it felt like it was abandoned. And I wasn't sure how that happened or what was going on, but I knew that that was happening. You know, one of the things that just strikes me is in a number of the people that you interviewed in the book whose stories you tell uh, in No Apologies, um, you know, for Brett, Brett Weinstein, for example, talks about how the, the idea of having challenging opinions and, and scientific opinions, viewpoints, um, is central to the to the idea of doing science at all, right? It's the and scientific method, right? Right, exactly. And it's it it just it's almost just bizarre. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but it's just so bizarre that that there's this idea that we 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 work through scientific consensus or that someone is the science. That's the one that has become one of my favorite, or 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 at least can 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 represent the truth of science at, at a given point. Exactly. I see it as a, you know, when somebody challenges me, I see that as a service to me. I think often people respond to it and, and they're, they're trying to defend their positions, but, and they see it as an attack. But to me, when somebody disagrees with me and they do it thoughtfully, it's, it's kind of a gift, I say, because it allows me to refine my own perspective. And sometimes I'll go back and I'll have the same perspective, but it will be stronger because I'll understand exactly why I believe what I believe. Or maybe there's some cracks in what I'm thinking and I need to adjust it a little bit. So I see that as a gift and we need that opportunity. And you're not gonna get that opportunity if you're only talking to people who absolutely agree with you. So, and I think that's part of the radicalization that we're seeing where you know, people go further and further into their sort of echo chambers, right, on the right, on the left, and, and, and in multiple disciplines, because they don't have that push and pull that's really necessary to refine ideas and to keep them, you know, sort of sane. So instead, if you're just having people affirming exactly what you believe, you kind of gravitate further and further to some levels of extreme. And I think that is fundamentally a very dangerous thing, and that is what I'm currently seeing in our society, unfortunately. Well, and James Damore, as you note in uh, in the book, sort of observes that that's kind of what happened to Google at an institutional level, having no competition, right? And so, you know, kind of the, then has the sort of proclivity to, to get fixated on ideological things as opposed to having to face the needs of the populace, so to speak, or develop the product so that it will actually work for people as opposed to develop the thing they feel like they should be developing. Before we go there, I just want to talk about this, you know, moment where you suddenly uh, uh, became outed as a thought criminal or, um, you know, that, 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 that process, how that happened, how you, what you realized. Yeah, definitely. I, th I think thought criminal is an apt descriptor of this. So there was an inciting uh, incident and somebody referred to it as my um, Genesis story, <laughs> essentially, like a superhero or a supervillain. I, I don't know yet which one I'll be. Um, and I guess it depends on people's perspectives, how they judge me. But, um, you know, I, I basically, I ran a group and it was for female writers and they had different offshoots that, you know, dealt with 
you know, how to find work and, and advice and science writing and arts and business and all sorts of things. And so I decided I, I did an offshoot. And since it was already a group for women, I had to maintain that. So that group was for female writers and specifically focused on employment opportunities. And we had some mentorship programs within some resources and just jobs that we would share within the group. And what happened was um, somebody shared a, a job opening at Fox News and <laughs> all hell broke loose, basically. And everybody, you know, people started really attacking her, piling up on this person and just really were quite savage to this individual. So I, you know, as the, the person who runs the group, I felt like I had to step in. So I made a post that I thought was pretty neutral. And I just said, let's avoid personal attacks and let's not have politics in the group. And let's come together instead of how we've been coming apart so much over the last few years. And I thought that was a pretty PC post, but apparently people did not agree with me. So they started, you know, calling me a white supremacist, said that I'd soon let the KKK recruit from my job board and all sorts of things. And it was just, it just really spiraled. And they also said, well, you can't take, if you take, you can't take politics out of a group that's meant for women because that's inherently political. So I said, okay, well, then why I don't want politics in here, so I'll open it up to everyone, um, which I was <laughs> fine with anyways. But um, that, that in particular caused things to really escalate. So it got to the point where people were sending me threats. They were trying to reach out to my employers or past employers to make sure I was unhirable. Uh, for example, one of the images that I really recall is mobs with torches. And it just said, you know, we have long memories. We talk about bullying. People downvoted my content. People were attempting to dox me. So it's just, it just really spiraled beyond anything I've ever experienced. However, um, what I was also getting at the same time were also messages of support. And this kind of takes us back to this idea of, of the silent majority, because a lot of these people were saying, look, I, I see what's happening to you. And I think it's actually really wrong, but I feel really ashamed because I, I'm too afraid to speak up. And then on top of it, I was getting a lot of messages from people who were sharing their own stories of how the bullies went after them and they've lost their employment opportunities. They've left their careers. They um, lost their communities. All of those things were happening. And I was really overwhelmed and uh, by by all of that. And I felt like I had two options. I was really at a crossroad. I could go left and I could just remain silent and, and let this kind of fade away. And I think it would have, to be honest, because I think the mob only has, you know, attention spent for a couple of weeks. And the other option was to um, st take a stand and I took a stand, I wrote a piece for Newsweek. The other thing that was happening, they were writing like little articles on me as well. So it was, it was, it was somewhat prominent, but it wasn't quite in that very, very public sphere at that point. And I was worried that, you know, now I'm making it public and it's probably going to ruin my entire career. And people were warning me not to do it. 
And the article, while it shared my own story, it was really about how we're heading towards this culture, already in this culture, of such intolerance towards different ideas, different people, and the importance of, of having that tolerance and having that dialogue. And I found something within me that I didn't think really existed, like a backbone. <laughs> and so I published it and waited. You know, it's funny now I feel so sort of distanced from it. But at the time, it was it was deeply emotional. And I, as much as I hate using the word, I realize now that it was quite traumatic. I am a bit of a people pleaser. You know, that's in my nature. And I don't like chaos. I don't like conflict and confrontation. Those are probably the things I have the most anxiety about. You know, now I think I've grown thicker skin, but that piece, it was called something about the virtuous bullies, basically. And I called them bullies, you know, called them out for what they were. And they kind of faded away. And instead, I ended up having a lot of people um, who came out and really resonated with the piece people who shared their own experiences. And I started building sort of a community and also looking into the phenomenon a lot more, even though I was already aware of, you know, what people call cancel culture. I don't think I realized quite the extent because often we hear certain stories of perseverance. We only hear about celebrities, big stars. We don't really hear about the average person who just has their, you know, nine to five job. And so I felt like writing this book, I really wanted to reach people and empower them so that they understand a what the scale of the problem is and why it's important, how it affects every part of our society, be it arts, be it science, be it tech, uh, um, academia, and also, you know, take away some lessons from those people in terms of what they learned, what their path was. So that was my intention with writing the book. You know, initially you had all these people reach out to you. Some of those people were no doubt, you know, what, what, what we would call conservatives, right? At, at the Epoch Times, uh, I had never thought about whether we were conservative or liberal or anything like that. Like, I didn't really, we, we didn't really think in those categories until, you know, 2015, 2016, when we started being pejoratively called conservative. I didn't even realize it was a pejorative. Um, it's, you know, in Canada, as you know, it's, you know, the kind of the name of a political party. Um, it didn't, it's just very, very different in the U.S. Um, and, but, but it, it was very much a pejorative. And you even kind of mentioned in the book, too, how you had this kind of, you know, distance to, to, to so-called conservatives, whether or not they really were. And so tell me a little bit about that and the change in your thinking and what, even what that means or how that's used. Yeah, I mean, I was always more, a little bit more open-minded about um, people on different political spectrums because I was always sort of willing to talk to anybody. But even even then, despite that, I think I definitely had some biases against conservatives. And certainly, like, you're right, the idea of somebody being called a conservative, there is a slur-like element to it. So the people that reached out to me, I would say they were really all over the spectrum. And in fact, a lot of the times the people who were affected by it were people more predominantly on the left because it was their own tribes canceling them. But 
people who and or people who sort of hid the fact that they were conservative. So I had a lot of people like that reach out for sure, because I mean, how awful is it that you have to hide that you're conservative? But I think a lot of people do. A lot of the people, because they were targeted more just for being conservatives, they there's a lot of conservatives sort of took up this uh, mantle for free speech and being anti-cancel culture because I feel like that was really affecting them and it was and at first as I sort of got to know much many more conservatives than I used to I just I just didn't really have many in my circle just because it, you know just the nature of the industries I was in I got to know them and I got to know their perspectives and it wasn't entirely what I was uh, told throughout my life. Now, there are definitely some that meet that stereotype of, of being, you know, these kind of alt-right or white supremacist types. They do very much exist and I've come across them also. But, you know, that's not the vast majority of people that I had encountered. Uh, we have different perspectives on things, um, but the often what I've realized is often we want to solve similar problems. We just have different approaches to how we want to go about it. So, you know, it's been it's been quite a journey for me to get to know that group of people. And I think in the beginning, I was even like, well, maybe I'm a conservative and I just didn't know it. <laughs> and I quickly realized that that is not the case. Just because of how I look at the world and some of the values that I have. But there's, but, but what bothers me a lot about all this is I really didn't used to think about it much. You know, I really never really, you know, yes, I, I view myself as a liberal, but it wasn't a big part of my identity. It didn't care so much about somebody's political orientation. It wouldn't even be a question that I would ask. And now there is this kind of, everyone's sort of divided and they divide themselves as well, right? They put it on their bios on social media and, and they won't talk to the other side and they'll actually state that in their bios as well. And I've seen that on, on frankly, both sides of the aisle. And even in the beginning, some people that I've engaged with immediately because I was like a liberal, which they could tell from the publications I've written for, you know, they would be very, very, <laughs> angry towards me. And I know that happens very much on the other side as well. There's this dehumanization that that's going on. But ultimately, you know, this is also a part of the stifling of ideas because I've had conversations with communists actually, and I've had conversations with people very much on the right. And I think there are some things that I agree with, you know, that might be considered traditionally on the left, some things on the right. And, and frankly, I don't even see it as this like two sides anyways. I, I think you need to look at things and look, here's the best idea. This, is, this, this idea is gonna really help this issue. Nobody should really care if this is traditionally right or left as long as it helps people. But unfortunately we have such a rivalry going on and sort of an inability to compromise or work together and find some solutions together. And I think that causes a lot of chaos and a lot of problems don't get fixed. Like for example, something that I've noticed that both people on the left and the right would be pretty keen on fixing and even investing money in is homelessness or 
mental health issues. Mental health issues is something that seems to really unite um, in the conversations that I've had. People are pretty united and wanting to do something about it and increase um, attention and even increase funding, even though, you know, conservatives might be traditionally against putting as much money into social programs. And yet they're not talking to each other. And so the problem gets completely ignored. And so that's something that um, was part of my discovery process, I guess. Well, some of these ideas, you could use the term leftist or far left or whatever. A lot of the ideas that dominate in our society today are ideas that don't withstand that scrutiny. Right. Yet they yet we're implementing them. I mean, you could you could come up, you know, for example, the current border policy would be a great example of something which is, you know, by any rational standard, a horrible failure. Right. But uh, but but because it can't withstand scrutiny, it, it, it ends up being something that's sort of beyond reproach. And a lot of these types of ideas, that's 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 how I kind of view sort of the purpose in a way of this silencing of, uh, you know, creating this silence majority. Perhaps this was Herbert Marcuse's, you know, evil genius when he came up with, uh, you know, the print, this repressive tolerance principle where we, you, you, you can't tolerate people that aren't part of our team because they're, you know, regressive and, and, and we need to kind of push forward with the revolution. Yeah, I mean, I again, I think it's it's this sort of positioning where people are very just defensive of their ideas instead of, of coming together something like the border and I, I have no real expertise there but you know it is something that i imagine that a lot of people on both sides are pretty concerned about it um but i would say that people on the left would have a very difficult time voicing that because it will come across you know potentially racist even though it really shouldn't be if you're going to have borders, you, you do have the right to enforce them. You might disagree with the idea of having borders, which is fine. You can have some arguments for that. I, I've had them myself. But but if you believe that borders should exist, um, then, you know, you should support those borders being enforced. And I think that with conservatives, what I find is that there is a very aggressive way of, of talking about it. So I think they're right to bring it up. Uh, but I think what's happening is that you have one side that's just, you know, vilifying anything that conservatives say or any issues they bring up and instead sort of cling to these potentially bad ideas, uh, no matter what, which is a, a, a terrible position to take because you're just causing chaos. And on the other hand, you have a group of people who are just very fed up with being ignored. And so they're getting more aggressive. And that really precludes a very good conversation or a working relationship between the two, where really they should be working <laughs> on some things together because they think they can. And again, they can sort of balance each other. And then people getting increasingly frustrated to the point that, you know, some people are seriously discussing civil war, which is absolutely insane. I hope it's not remotely realistic, but but that is the mindset that's happening. And part of that, well, a huge part of that is is, is happening because there is a side that feels like they're not being listened to at all and they're vilified. Right. And so they become such radically defensive. Well, and then, you know, many people 
that I've spoken with on the show, and I think you've spoken with some of them as well, would argue that that's indeed by design because the the sort of the the purpose of this is to kind of you know kind of break the system in a way. And I, of course, as much as many people aren't that might be involved in that aren't aware that that's that's the true motive, you know, kind of the Cloward Piven, uh, you know, approach or something like that. I don't think it's by design. I know a lot of people think that. I I just don't give people that level of, of credit. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know how bureaucracies work, and I know how these institutions work, and I know how politicians function. I mean, yes, there is, I'm sure there's some political levers of power that are being taken advantage of, absolutely. But I don't think that this whole idea, like, let's break society or let's break the United States is, is, is intentional as much as it is a, is a consequence of certain intolerances of certain kinds of pe people taking power and wanting to cling to that power and oppressing those who do not fit their model of, of perfection. And it's a level of idealism that may, you know, may be not ideal for society, but is being forced down on people. But I don't necessarily think it's, it's like, okay, let's, break these institutions on purpose. I really don't. Okay. Well, it could also be that there's some people that have that intention and a whole lot of people that don't. You know, for example, yeah. the, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has that very specific purpose and has, for example, you know, the tool of, of TikTok to be able to, you know, sow these kinds of, you know, things into society. You know, one example that comes to my mind, right, is you know, all of a sudden after October 7th, you had all these young people going around saying that Osama bin Laden had a point, had a good point, because they had heard from an influencer that the letter, that Osama bin Laden's letter to America was a, you know, was a, was a, you know, very important and thoughtful document and had a lot of good points. I think they're taking existing rifts and they're taking existing narratives that already exist in society and are being pushed from the inside and they take advantage of them and they magnify them and they amplify them. So you see, you're right, the CCTP and also Russia and, and many other players. I mean, I've, I've looked a bit into just how disinformation, but the real kind, the kind where, you know, governments are intentionally exploiting social media platforms, they're paying influencers, they're spreading fake news, which they actually create, they even create entire news channels that aren't real to spread um, fake stories. I mean, that's all happening. And, it, and a lot of governments are actually involved in that. So it'd be silly to think that that's not happening in the US. It's track provably happening in the US and Canada and the West. And but I do think that they're taking grains of truth. And that's where the best lies operate you know, at, at, at their peak is when they take grains of truth and they manipulate them. And I even see that with, for example, with Putin, you know, he's using, um, he's exploiting this anti-woke narrative to which there is a lot of truth, right? There is kind of this wokeness that people talk about and people stand up against it. And he's trying to get the group that's standing up against it by exploiting that narrative and amplifying it and also manipulating it for his own means, I think you can't just completely invent something and you have to take it from an existing system, but you can absolutely grow it. And I think that's what we're seeing happening. Absolutely. Let's take your own experience and, you know, these 16 other experiences which you chronicle, you know, each, each which of which has a bit of a lesson with it. 
what would what would you say is your sort of the, the the biggest lesson of all for you know dealing with this milieu if you are let's say secretly a free thinker and but and maybe you you uh, you're trying to figure out what to do because of the challenges of you know being canceled potentially or um, or you know you're facing your peers and so forth. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, there is a reason why my book is called No Apologies. Um, I think <laughs> um, even though I am a Canadian and we apologize even when people step on our foot. Um, stereotypically, am, yes. Stereotypically. It's kind of, it's true, actually. But I do believe that, you know, no apologies means to stand up for the things that you really believe in. It doesn't mean never, ever, ever apologize for something. You shouldn't, you should apologize for something if you were wrong, if you got something wrong, or if you, you know, if you did something wrong, you should absolutely apologize for it. But if you believe something to be true and you're standing up for something that you should do that unapologetically, you should do that firmly. Um, if you don't do that firmly, it's a, it is seen as a sign of weakness. But more importantly, I think the fundamental principle should be there. You should stand up for the things you really believe in. You don't have to you know, stand up for everything. You can, you can choose what you stand up for. It, it, it should be something that's really meaningful to you, that's, that's a universal value that you have. Or maybe you just stand up for a friend. And this is what we see so often in many of the stories. You see how quickly people turn on other people and become part of the mobs just so that they can fit in or they just stay silent. They don't stand up for their own friends. Often it's not because they believe whatever the mob is chanting at them. It's because they don't have the backbone to stand up for someone that's, you know, an important person in their lives. And if you can't do that, if you can't stand up for a human being that you respect and love and appreciate, and if you can't stand up for a principle that you believe in, if you can't stand up when somebody's doing something that isn't right, then who are you? You're just reminding me of something. You know, I, I don't have a lot of regrets in my life. I've kind of, um, you know, cho chosen a certain path through, through my life. But I do have a few, and they're very stark. And one of them is from, you know, pretty early childhood, like, you know, kind of grade school. And, and it's precisely that, like, betrayal of a, someone who was a friend to kind of be part of the larger group, which is something I really wanted. And I'll, I'll never forget that, and it's very difficult for me to even forgive myself for that. Courage speaking out in this context or, you know, being able to, to, to express what's actually on your mind, what your values are, it's kind of, it, it's, it's a muscle. Like you, you kind of, once you do it a little bit, you get better at it and you feel more, more confident that you can do it. But the flip side is also true. As long as you stay silent, it's very hard. That inertia is very powerful and you can see, you know, what happened because you can see what happens to people when they, when they choose to do it and then get kind of squashed by the mob as you describe it. So, yeah, and that's why I would encourage people to do it and gra gradually, you know, and, and if you're really going to pick that moment to speak up, then you're in a better shape than those who, you know, found themselves on the wrong side unexpectedly because they didn't have a chance to sort of prepare. And to some extent, I was preparing because I was already, 
I definitely wanted to be able to use my voice more before sort of the inciting incident, but it, it was still very weak. But I think what's important is that you start, okay, first you talk to your friends, people who understand you, who are close to you, then it becomes sort of normal and second nature. And you have far more authentic relationships because you're actually saying, you know, they, you're actually saying what you mean, what you, you believe. And, and then, you know, you start talking to people you meet and, and you tell them what you believe. And then, you know, it depends. We, we, not everybody has like a platform is going to, you know, write a book or, or go on social media or go on talk shows. So everybody does it differently in their lives, but it has to be sort of normalized. You know, I think a lot of times people think, okay, freedom of speech, I can say whatever I want. But you should also, I think you have the responsibility. It's not something I'm going to, hey, you have to do it this way. But you should reflect and think, what do I want to do with this fundamental freedom? And ideally, you say something that matters and that are thoughtful, that are they're in good faith. I, that's what I want to normalize. There's a cost to silence. The, the reason people stay silent is because you know, you have kind of plausible deniability <laughs> or something like that, I think. Um, and it's just, it's just a much easier road than being, you know, sort of taking a position and then having to face the ramifications of that, good or bad, right? And so just... Well, there's can, a personal sort of, cost that people often don't talk about, and there's a societal cost. The personal cost is that you ultimately live a life that is not authentic, like I said, you know, you don't really have real relationships, real friendships, because you can't talk to them openly. And I've noticed, you know, my friendships are so much better now that I'm more open. And it also, you know, with some people, maybe we're not as close anymore, because they're not as open minded. But luckily, most of my friends are and we assume the best of each other. So that's why we can say what we want to say. And, you know, even if somebody disagrees or finds something a little offensive, we can talk about it. And I'll, I'll listen to them, right. And, but the societal cost is that, ultimately, you know, you're letting that usually very radical minority, because those are the people who tend to have the loudest voices and megaphones and go so proactively, um, you're letting them dictate how society is ran. We talk about it in the context of a culture war, okay? That's not great. People losing their jobs, that's not great. Um, people being ostracized, also not great. But we've seen throughout history how it could lead to the ultimate price as well, people getting killed. You know, we've seen revolutions happen where people lose their lives because of a small group of people, but a very dominant group of people who incite these revolutions, who, you know, they, they take these ideas and, and it all starts from the silencing of speech. That's what that's why, you know, it is such a fundamentally important thing. You know, absolutely. And, you know, to take that even a little further, one of the, I guess, core lessons after having done almost a thousand uh American thought leaders interviews, talking to people on a ver challenging some of these grand narratives, many of them false that are kind of dominating our society today. You know, one of the things I realized along the way was that we're very susceptible as human beings to us this sense that something is the overall view, even if it's only 10% or 5% or something like that of a very large group. That group can almost brainwash people a bit, or act, maybe not almost, actually you know, brainwash society somewhat because of that 
sense that when we believe something is the overall view because it's very loud and no one's saying anything, we're, we're kind of, we're pushed in that direction. This is one of the reasons why I believe the truckers protest, which is just in the news as we're, as we're uh, filming right now, um, you know, the, the federal court in Canada has basically deemed these, this emergencies act, which was used to stop the truckers protest in early 2020, February of 2022, as, as unconstitutional, as against the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and so forth. So those protests were some of the most important in recent history. I mean, like overall, and I think this is the reason because they kind of broke the narrative. It wasn't just one person. It wasn't a few people. It was a whole bunch of a very, a very diverse group of people that said, no, we're not going to accept this with thing that we're all supposed to accept. Yeah, and they got to that point, I think, because their voice was so heavily suppressed and oppressed and vilified to such an extent. Um, it was quite shocking and, and life changing in some ways to see what happened during the pandemic. So I'm not even someone who's anti-vaccine myself, but I was very much anti-mandates uh, because I do believe in people's fundamental right to choose. And a lot of things didn't didn't quite make sense. I was I was one of the people who early on was like masking and and um, isolating. And, and I think I filmed a video about how you should clean everything. And, you know, I was in that group. But what I saw was how quickly people are able to take a group and vilify them in language that is so enormously dehumanizing and how quickly your freedoms are able to be taken away without any real discussion, without vote, without anything. And that was very alarming for me to see. And then with the trucker protest, you know, what I noticed with that, and I'm not a big I'm not big on protest myself, but people have the fundamental right to protest. And what I was seeing and what I started speaking out about with that was in particular, you know, how the media was covering it. They'd see one Nazi flag or, or something with a swastika, who knows who brought that. And I'm Jewish, you know, so I would find that particularly offensive. But it doesn't mean that the whole crowd of people is suddenly, you know, rabid anti-Semites or Nazis or as it was described. And then seeing our prime minister, uh, Trudeau, Kind of even before the protest began, that's what was very uh, alarming at the time. He had already described them in certain ways that it's, it's just a population that disagrees, that dares to dissent, and they're being painted as these absolutely evil individuals. While there are certain things that I feel like happened during the protest that I disagree with, like the blocking of the bridge, which I do think is criminal. Um, this kind of idea that this group of people is not entitled to a voice because people were so scared. I think that's that's where it was coming from. When people are particularly scared, they're willing to give up their power. And that's what happens. I think I think it was this fear that was dictating it. But people also banned their their principles. I've been a liberal voter, you know, so I'm like I'm the Trudeau target demographic, although I wasn't a huge fan. And, be, and I've even voted left of that um, at a certain point. Um, the idea that you can just ignore a huge segment of your population and just paint them as, as evil and racist and all the labels that didn't even make sense that he gave them, it was very terrifying to see. And I went from not maybe liking him very much because of 
very virtue signally and and uh, don't think he was particularly smart to um, to really actively being afraid that he had this authoritarian streak. And in particular, when he invo invoked the, um, is it the Military Act? I, I keep forgetting. The, the Emergencies the, Act. The emer it used to be the called the War Measures Act. Act. So I can see why yeah. you would say that. Yeah, that's right. So the War Measures Act was only invoked one time, um, ironically, by his father. And then we have this act um, that was invoked, and it, it was so unprecedented. And for what? I mean, we've had other, there have been riots in the past, right? Riots that are praised in the U.S. Uh, I think uh, Trudeau kneeled uh, in regards to the BLM demonstrations. So this idea that you can take one group and apply a completely different standard to them and then, you know, freezing bank accounts completely undermined a democratic society or a liberal society was authoritarian. And when I talked to other people, they agree, right? They, they, they found that to be quite terrifying, unprecedented. And they, in particular, might have even hated the trucker protests. And the same thing when I talked to people overseas, they're just, they were really stunned. They did not expect that. That treatment was just absolutely absurd. And I think a good leader is also somebody who listens to a population and regardless of whether that segment of the population even voted for him, because he's been elected to represent everyone and to, again, vilify a particular group just because he doesn't like them or doesn't agree with them, you know, when he could have engaged with dialogue in dialogue, which would have been far more productive in maintaining some semblance of peace instead, you know, sending the troops on them. <laughs> that to me was just a ter terrifying moment. And I guess that's why some people are like, Canada has fallen. And I loved Canada. I, you know, I'm an immigrant to Canada. I, I think there's a lot of wonderful, wonderful things about Canada, but this was not one of them. You know, I can't help but think again about, you know, this sort of evil genius of Herbert Marcuse's repressive tolerance, which basically you know, to me sets this sort of pseudo moral framework for allowing for that kind of thinking in the first place. And I feel like we're kind of living in the logic of that moment in many cases. You know, uh, so just very briefly, you know, what's your reaction to this federal court ruling? I was quite relieved, actually, to have that federal court ruling. I didn't expect I didn't expect it, you know, to be honest, I, I feel like the system is a little bit rigged right now. So I was quite surprised and relieved that that happened. But I know that they immediately, um, the government immediately w moved forward to, um, to repel it, I guess. And um, that's unfortunate. I think a lot of Canadians will appreciate that, will feel like maybe the system isn't completely against them, that there is some fairness in, inherently in the system, even if, you know, the government currently is treating them unfairly. So, you know, your number one lesson is never apologize if you did nothing wrong. But also have a plan B if you do. <laughs> so you have some level of protection for yourself if you do decide to speak. I think it's really important to sort of consider the implications. I did not. I kind of went into it um, just idealistic and, and a bit blind. 
and I'm trying to figure out my way forward with this. Um, it's definitely had a lot of costs in that um, arena. Um, but I do think that if you are going to choose it, uh, you can be set up for a better outcome. And that's one of the advice that was given in one of the chapters. And I think if you can set it up where you have a level of independence or you have an employer who is, is supportive of you regardless, you know, who understands you're just a good human being who is expressing some opinions, I think that's, uh, that's a good thing to consider. Was the cost worth it? I think so. I mean, look, I've, I've always said, I guess I did think of a plan B. I, I always say, say this, and it's kind of a ridiculous pie in the sky plan B. It's like, oh, if anything, I'll, I'll open a coffee shop and I'll just be, <laughs> and I'll work in a coffee shop. But I'll, you know, it will be not a desirable outcome. And in my case, I was sort of at the peak of my career when I, when I, when all of this kind of went down. That's what, when I've chosen this path. And in many ways, I would say, I chose it as opposed to just falling um, victim to it because I think I could have probably been okay had I just kept uh, my head down and not gone on um, shows like yours. But but I didn't feel like as a human being I could live with myself and I found um, a greater sense of purpose and I found a more authentic me, which I think is worth the price because what's the point of living if you cannot be an authentic human being. And I've gotten to know some wonderful people and had such great conversations. And I feel like I'm operating in a different realm because I am around people who are just so much more open-minded, whether they agree with me or disagree with me, that doesn't really matter. They're just human beings who are trying to make sense of the world. We're all trying to make sense of the world. Then we're gonna get it wrong sometimes. And we're gonna say the wrong things sometimes. And we're gonna offend people sometimes. It is not my intention to offend people, but it is something that's going to happen in the process of figuring things out. And I very much wanna learn and be curious. And part of that curiosity, I think has to express itself with words and being able to say things that are a little bit dangerous to say. You said something very interesting because it was almost in the same words that I use myself. Um, you know, sometimes people will say you're courageous. And I think the thing of the uh, this idea of not being able to live with yourself to not do it, that might not be exactly the same thing as courage, but I think it's still very valuable, right? One common thread that I found in, in the stories that of the people that I interviewed for the book really was that sense of integrity. I don't think it was like courage in the sense that, oh, I'm not scared. So, or I'm, well, courage is actually doing something when you are scared. So I guess that is a form of courage. But a lot of people were not necessarily like brave people inherently. I'm not a brave person inherently. And I think it's important for people to understand that because ultimately you're right. What it is, is, is that sense of integrity, that moral compass of being willing to stand up for principles. The truth is most people have a tremendous amount of fear. You just need to persevere through that fear. And like you said earlier, it is a muscle, very much so. I found that very much to be the, a muscle within me. The, the level of comfort I, I have now speaking is very different from when I started. So I just, that's why I encourage people to take maybe gentle steps, whatever you feel comfortable with and build up that muscle. Well, and just something that struck me, you know, in reading your book and actually talking with our producers about, you know, is there is, there's this price to stepping out, you know, and you said it's worth it, but 
the other part is there's the price to the silence. There's this cost to the silence, right? And maybe people becoming more aware of that. No, absolutely. And by the way, I should say, I mean, the cost I think is worth worth it for me. I cannot say if it's worth it for someone else. I cannot decide, you know, people have families, they have kids, they have different circumstances. So everybody is in their unique boat. But ultimately, I do think that we have that responsibility. And when you don't have an opposition, you feel empowered and that you feel empowered to do sometimes very, very terrible things. So that is the cost of the science. And that's why I said it can be very much a life and death situation. It, it can cause wars, you know, it can cause genocides when we are not able to stand up and talk. And, you know, a lot of the conversation around this stuff tends to go around, like I said, more of the cultural war side of things, you know, can you say what is a woman or, you know, things like that. But ultimately, there's so many things in our world, in our society that we're not able to talk about, or we're only expected to stick to a particular narrative. And some of these things lead us to such horrible outcomes. You don't want one person or one entity deciding what is an appropriate form of speech and what is not. Now, privately, I might think, well, this person is kind of a jerk and I don't want to associate with him. And that's why we also have free association. Or if I have my own you know, company, I might have some rules uh, on speech. But, um, but ultimately, you know, I, I think we can never be in a position. And as a society, we should be encouraging when it's good faith conversation, we should be able to have them. And even... Look, I've talked to some Nazis, you know, like the real kind, right? I have. And uh, sometimes it's productive, sometimes it's not. Sometimes even being able to show that person that you can have a conversation with them without, you know, starting to go off at them. And I certainly don't have uh, particularly positive views of, of, of Nazis, but, you know, being able to have that conversation sometimes changes their, their mind, just having a positive interaction with someone who happens, in my case, I'm Jewish, you know, and I'm not like going off at them. I think it, they find it kind of puzzling and maybe gradually that will cause them to rethink their sort of hatred. One of the chapters in my book is, is one of my favorite chapters is Daryl Davis because he's such a role model to me. You know, this is a black uh, man, jazz musician and civil rights activist who actually took time to get to know people who are members of the KKK and people who immediately sort of hate him. But his whole thing is, well, how can you hate me if you don't even know me? And that is true because a lot of these people are not even familiar with someone like him. And so he would have these conversations and he's been collecting hoods of people who left the KKK. And it wasn't even him being like, you should leave, right? It was just having, having an opportunity to sort of get to know him and they couldn't stay the same. So when you have that kind of a potential outcome, I think it's worth risking a conversation with someone you don't particularly like. And he says this in the book, you know, some people will go to the grave hating and some people might change. It might be a small amount of people, but, you know, I think there's hope and, and this is my Pollyanna com complex, I guess, but I'd rather look at things that way than the alternative way. Any, any final thoughts as we finish, Catherine? No, and I mean, I think actually what you just brought up is, is uh, worth, worth uh, touching on because a lot of my time is spent 
figuring out how we can have better conversations. What are some of the tools, the tools to be open enough to also change your own mind? What questions you should ask yourself? And even as, as every canceled person seems to have a Substack, that's something that I put a lot of mine and same on my social media. It's something I spend a lot of time. And I think a lot of people, you know, I think the other thing is modeling that kind of behavior, I think is very, very powerful. And I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say, listen, I, I tried your method and I managed to have conversations with people I very, very radically disagree with. And now they follow me. You know, I had somebody reach out to me the other day and say that. And I've had many other people do that because that can have such an impact. Just having a human being to human being conversation you don't know what the impact of that is going to be. And ultimately, you know, when people are coming at you, I think this is the other sort of big lesson that I, I learned myself when I was being attacked, because part of me was thinking, am I wrong? You know, so many people are coming at me and they're so angry. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm not seeing something. And I, and I did listen to them very much, but what I was seeing was people who ultimately were, you know, they were calling me names, they were calling me, they were attacking me, they were trying to dehumanize me, they were trying to destroy me by, you know, somebody said this recently to me, like, what's the point of cancellation, like, to take away your job? Well, what happens if you don't have a job? How do you eat? So isn't the ultimate point of that to basically take away your life? And that really resonated with me, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's actually true. So when you're hearing things from people who have no morals in the way that they approach it because they think they're justified because they think they're right. I don't think those are the people you should be listening to. Now, if somebody comes to me in good faith and makes an argument and tells me why, you know, they disagree with me, that's a whole different thing. I'll always listen to that. But ultimately you have to listen to yourself and to your voice and figure out and surround yourself with the people that you trust to, to challenge you. So you don't become completely oblivious to what other people are thinking. Who is it that you want to run society? And if you don't want those very angry, very radicalized voices to be the ones dictating what our world looks like, then I think you should try and use your own voice to stand up to that. Well, Catherine Brodsky, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you so much. Pleasure being on. Thank you.